All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? You like my dress? See, some of you didn't get the dress code. It's bow tie day and suit jacket day because we're talking about CEO God. For those of you that might be a guest, this is your first time here, or maybe you're tuning in, you're going, what is going on? My name is Ryan, and I'm the lead pastor here. And we've been in a series where we're exploring these mistaken identities of God. And today is CEO God, so this is my best CEO outfit. Any, any C-level folks in the room? I'm going to offend you today. All right, so I am an equal opportunity offender. That's just kind of, I wish that's my spiritual gift. So uh, stick around long enough, and I'm sure it'll happen to you. But uh, we're, we're in this series, and, and so what we want to do is talk about this idea of how God reflects different realities of our lives and images and what people tell us about God. Uh, how many of you have ever worked at a place? If you're in the room, you can raise your hand. If you're online, hit the like button or heart or something to let us know. How many of you have ever worked at a place that just stressed you out? You ever have that experience, like a boss or something that just, I worked for somebody one time and he was a train wreck of a leader, an absolute train wreck of a leader. Uh, in staff meetings would swear and yell at people and, and then like, be like, you want to go to lunch? I'm like, no, I don't want to go to lunch with you. I'll go to lunch with you. And this was, I mean, this, by the way, this was at a church. Like, this was a pa senior pastor that I was working for, like an absolute nightmare of a leader. Um, so it doesn't matter where you're at. Like, we all have those experiences, and we know the stress that can come from a bad work environment. And what's interesting is this idea of a taskmaster, uh, somebody who is absolutely not pleased with our effort, always demanding more and more out of us. Uh, there's a task list, things we have to get done. It, where does that come from when we think about God? Because there is this brand of spirituality. There is this understanding of God where we go through and we feel like, man, it just feels like God wants more and more and more from me. And sometimes it happens from folks like me who stand up and we encourage lots of big ideas and ways in which we can impact our world and things we can do. That sometimes it just feels like I'm just driven by a task list. Like that's what spirituality is. I think there's three contributing factors to CEO God's spirituality here in the West, and particularly American Christianity. I think there's kind of three underlying narratives that shape us just by the very nature of our culture that provide a great kind of fertile soil for this type of spirituality. The first one I'll call the work ethic myth. How many of y'all have a good work ethic? Raise your hand up nice and high. Raise your hand up nice and high. Some of you just totally lied right through your teeth. Uh, I'm just kidding. It's funny. In the first service, I want to say like a third of the people raised their hand. Like two-thirds of the people were like, no, I don't. Not by anybody's standard is my work ethic good. I think they were just too tired to raise their hand, but much better response in this group. You at least lied about it, right? You're like, I don't want people to think I have a bad work ethic. But we have this myth of the work ethic, and it captivates our imaginations. And here's the myth, that if you just work hard, you'll excel. If you work hard, you'll excel. You'll be successful in life. And I say that's a myth because I know lots of people all around the globe that work hard but do not excel or advance in life particularly economically or in their professions, that it's just about working hard. It's hard work. If you work hard, you too can achieve what I should. Well, the reality is there's just too many factors involved in that. There's your zip code <laughs> that plays a factor in that. There's the country in which you were born that plays a factor in that. I've met and spoke with the people that spend six hours of their day walking to get clean water and bringing it back to the place in which they live so that they might be able to cook and clean and wash. And those, those folks work far harder than I ever will in my life. 
And so I call it a myth because it drives us. It's part of this kind of American dream that says if you just work hard, so we go, go, go. So we have this value of hard work. Is it a problem to have a good work ethic? No. What becomes a problem is when it becomes this driving belief system that says if I only work hard, then I'll make it. And then we bring that into our religious experience. The other thing that I think about our kind of culture that drives this and creates a fertile soil is the way in which we talk about success. So we think of success generally in economic terms. We think of success in productivity terms. And so for us, to be successful generally involves doing more, doing that more better, and doing that more really fast, <laughs> Right? Those are the driving factors. We say, if, I, if, if my output as a worker is 100 widgets per hour, that's baseline. You're successful if you can do 110 widgets per hour, and you can actually make that widget better in the same amount of time, and you can do it even faster. Like That's how we drive it, and it's all driven by work. Do, 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 do. And then what happens is the third, I think, underlying factor is our identities as people in, in our culture are often tied into the question, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? What do you do for work? In other words, our vocational identity becomes our personhood. We intermix these two. So we identify, we measure, and at the end of the day, if we're honest, we judge people by their vocation. We think, oh, this person, ooh, wow, look at what they do for a living. Forget that they could be one of the most horrible human beings on the planet, Right? We would value and revere them because they might have a certain title or they might make a certain amount of money or they might have some interest. Right? It doesn't matter their ethics. It doesn't matter their morality. We still will hold them up high. And so all of that together produces, I think, a culture where it's very easy for us to attribute a God that it, we, we connect and we talk about being powerful, this God that we set has things under control, this God that's in all. Like, it's easy for us to project that in. But here's the problem with CEO God's spirituality. CEO God's spirituality, at the end of the day, lacks empathy, produces anxiety, and just leaves us exhausted. <laughs> it's just like, a, just like that exhausted job that we have, right? If you're, if you're in the mindset and the construct that if all you have to do is work hard in life, you'll succeed, then we're going to look at people in, our, in this kind of faith structure and we're going to lack empathy because we're going to say, oh, they just aren't working hard. They aren't reading their Bible enough. <laughs> they don't go to church enough. They don't give enough in the offering, right? There's going to be this lack of empathy. We're going to look at churches that we might think are smaller churches and go, oh, they're just, you know, they're just not working hard. They're not making enough sacrifices. This type of spirituality just produces a lot of anxiety because there's always something else to do. Right? There's always something else to do. There's always another mountain to climb. There's always another hill to conquer. There's always more. And you just end up exhausted. <laughs> just like, not another thing. Not another thing. And what I'd like to do is spend a few minutes and say, well, how does this come about? Because there's usually is a scriptural basis for it. I'm going to take off the tie and the jacket so I don't have to distract you all with my incredible wardrobe today. Right? So we have this question that we have to ask. Like, what does, what does scripture lend to us? Like, where does this come from? Is there any wisdom that we look at in Scripture that can help us identify where this comes from, and maybe how do we move past it, or should we move past it? And here's the, here's the truth of it, and this is hard to say because it's a bit of a confession. How many of y'all have ever been in middle management? You ever been in middle management? Nobody raised their hands super high about that. Like, yes, it was the best Right? You're in middle management right now. You're just stuck between a boss that doesn't like you and the people you're managing that you don't, they don't like you. And you're like, what is going on with my life? Right? 
But here's the thing, right? Uh, I'm in middle management. I don't know if you know that or not. I'm in like the middle management of the universe. That's the way I choose to look at it, right? So, so you kind of have this in people's minds. You're like this representative of God, which is really not true. But that's just kind of the way. So you feel like, well, I'm here to kind of like help people explore, ask questions, move along in life and understanding God's purpose, understanding the nature of God, all these types of things, particularly from the Christian faith, right? And here's what I've discovered about me and people in my position. Middle management. God says, here's a, here's a community of faith. Steward this flock, right? Take charge. Be in charge. Like, love it. Encourage it. Feed it. Feed my sheep. You know, the whole thing that Jesus said to Peter, maybe. He says, feed my sheep. He says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So that's what we're doing. But here's what we do in middle management, in middle management religious America that's grounded in buildings and uh, budgets and seats and butts in the seats and all that stuff, right? Here's what we do. We take scripture and we will use it to onboard people into the organization, corporation of God, right? Because why would we do that? Especially and particularly here in America, because that's the way we think. We're just structured in this way. Like the whole world around us is just, that's just what it is. It's corporate. That's the way we think. So I'm going to take scripture. People in my position are going to take scripture and we're going to onboard you, the onboard process. So this is kind of your orientation for the week. I'm going to give you your task. This is our standing meeting that we do every Monday morning for 15 minutes. Make sure everybody has their task list, know what you're going to do. Get out there, go do it, and I'll see you next staff meeting kind of mentality, right? And we'll use verses like James chapter 2, verse 14, which I used last week to talk about the importance of not sitting back and being hippie Jesus spirituality. But we'll take James 2.14 that says, faith without works is dead. You paid attention last week. Thank you very much. People just love to shout dead at church. You know, That's a good fill-in right there. Faith without works is dead. So we'll use that. Be like, well, don't have dead faith. Get signed up for the nursery. Don't have dead faith. Time to feed, time to take. Don't have dead faith. And there's always a list of problems that we can cover and take care of. So we'll use that. Uh, Ephesians 4.1, this, uh, this letter that is, uh, I would call it pseudo-Paul. It probably wasn't written by Paul, but uh, it's attributed to Paul. Ephesians chapter 4 has a, a beautiful passage of Scripture. I actually love this, this passage of Scripture. It says, live a life worthy of the call of Christ Jesus. Worthy of the call. And so we're going to take that, and because of the culture with which we live, it's very tempting to say, okay, so a life worthy of the call must look like a successful life in America, and so I have to do that. And so the life worthy of the call is the one that you probably don't have enough time for your friends or your family or any hobbies because we've got you so busy at church. Because if, it's not, if there's not something going on every night that you're expected to be at, if there's not something for you to give every bit of your money towards, then we're just not being successful if we're not growing. And then probably the most famous one that we love, middle management loves this one. Like this passage of scripture is our favorite. Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. Now some of you might have heard this. I'd like to talk about this parable because it really is a fan favorite when it comes to CEO God. So if you're not familiar with the parable of the talents, let me just kind of give it to you. Jesus is talking to a group of probably peasants. We have to get who he's talking to really to get the story. But he's teaching, and Jesus would always tell these things we call parables. They're little short stories, and they have a purpose or a meaning, usually to disrupt our way of thinking, to challenge what we think of as normative, right? That was the idea of a parable. This is kind of how you think about it, but let me tell you it this way and mess you up. That was kind of the idea. So here's, the, here's basically the parable of the talents. There was a, a very wealthy man who had servants and a lot of money, and he was going away on a long trip. So he called three of his servants in. To one servant, he gave five talents. 
Let's call that $5,000, because that's the idea as a town, so a unit of money. Gave him $5,000, said, take care of this, take care of my business while I'm gone. Called in the second service, servant, and gave him, <laughs> called in the second service. I'm going to give you all $2,000. No, called in the second servant and said, here's $2,000. I'm going away on a trip. I'll be back. Take care of my business. Calls in the third servant, said, here's $1,000, one talent. Take it, take good care of it. When I come back, we'll do some accounting. So he goes away for a long time, comes back, calls in the servants, brings the servant in who he gave five talents, $5,000 to, and says, how'd we do? Servant says, boss man, you're going to love it. Not only, did I have a few, not only do I have your five that you gave me, I got another five. Here's your 10, 10 talents back, say $10,000, doubled his money. Yahtzee! Master says, well done, come on in, that's awesome. Gives him a big old pat on the back, maybe a raise even. I can trust you. So calls in the second servant, who he gave two talents to in the story. We'll say $2,000. That servant comes in and says, boss man, here's the deal. You gave me $2,000. I got your $2,000 plus $2,000, 100% return on investment in me. He says, awesome. Gives him a pat on the back. Come on in. Good job. Brings up the one servant. Last servant, third servant comes in. He gave one talent. He says, tell me, how'd you do? He says, well, master, here's the deal. <laughs> This is what Jesus says. Then the one who had received the one talent or the $1,000 came forward and he said, you know, master, I knew you were a demanding person, harvesting where you did not plant and gathering where you did not scatter. So out of fear, I went off and buried your talent in the ground. I took that $1,000 and I buried it deep and here's it right back. I didn't lose it. And his master said to him in reply, you wicked. I'm sure it was like wicked, lazy Lazy servant. You ever say that to your kids? You wicked. No? Maybe I shouldn't use that. But that was my favorite line with my kids when they were younger. You wicked, lazy child. No. <laughs> you wicked. I was joking, by the way. Totally joking. They can, if they tell you otherwise, they're liars. They're liars. Okay. You, he, you wicked, lazy servant. So you know that I harvest where I did not plant and I gather where I did not scatter? Should you not then have put my money in the bank so that I could have got it back with interest on my return? Now then, take the talent from him, take that $1,000 from him, and give it to the one with 10000 For to everyone who has more, more will be given, and he will grow rich. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And throw this useless servant into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Isn't that good? Just makes you want to love on God. Just makes you feel all warm inside. And so that, that, that parable gets told. And here's how we use that. Here's how you've probably heard that. This is what happens. God, it doesn't matter what your gifts are, what your talents are. God gives that out. He measures that out. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with it. You might be a, I mean, I could preach this message right now without any notes. The power could go out and I could preach this message. I've heard it a million times. I probably have even given it at some point in time in my life. You might be a five-talent person. You might be a two-talent person. And you might be a one-talent person. The issue isn't how many talents you have. The issue is what will you do with them? Because God's going to give you an accounting for your life. One day you're going to give an account for the talents that you used or didn't use. And what will you do when you stand before the master and the master says, what have you done? Will you hear, good job, faithful servant. Come on in. Or will you hear, take this one out. And then 
It just happens to be when that message gets taught, we've got the ministry fair going on in the atrium. <laughs> so as you go out, you can sign up for a ministry <laughs> and make sure you don't go burn in hell because you then have gone and now you're working with the youth, its own type of hell, right? That's the idea behind the message. But here's the question. Does the master have to be God? Does the master have to be God? And if parables are meant to shock us, if parables are meant to, to challenge us, who in the history of the world would ever be shocked by a parable that would explain to you the perils of laziness? Like anybody in the room, anybody tuning online, not know that laziness will not get you very far in life. Nobody would be shocked by that. Nobody's sitting around going, I thought laziness was the way to success. I thought laziness was how I would win friends. I really thought that. Thank you so much, Jesus. Maybe there's something else going on here. A.J. Levine, who's a scholar, she writes this in her book called Short Stories by Jesus. She says, religion has been defined as designed to comfort the afflicted and to the afflict the comfortable. Okay? So religion has thought of, has been thought of, that it's been designed in such a way that it comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. So when we say something like, blessed are the poor, we're actually comforting the afflicted, right, and afflicting the comfortable. There's a challenge to us in that. And she says, we do well to think of the parables of Jesus as doing the afflicting. She says, therefore, if we hear a parable and think, ooh, I really like that, <laughs> or worse, fail to take any challenge, we're not listening well enough. We're not listening well enough. So maybe there is actually an interpretation of this parable that is more in alignment with the subversive nature of Jesus and what a parable is actually meant to do. So we have to imagine Jesus is not talking to a bunch of people that own their own fields and their own lands. He's talking to a bunch of people that probably have had much of their land taken by the Roman government or taken by wealthy aristocrats from Jerusalem and they've, been, they've put together this land, and they're now sharecroppers. They're farming land that isn't theirs any longer. They're barely even able to keep what they plant and what they sow and what they reap for themselves because they have to turn it all over to Rome. They've got to turn it over to the temple in Jerusalem. So they barely have enough for themselves. They're, these are not people who work for, these are people who probably work for wealthy landowners. They aren't the landowners themselves. They're drained, they're oppressed, He's talking in probably the rural countryside, Matthew 25. I'm not sure where Matthew puts that story, to be honest with you. But Jesus probably, when he tells this story, he's out in the country with peasants. Jesus was a peasant. So maybe the hero isn't the master. Maybe the hero isn't the ten-talent person that we want to be the hero because that feels good to us. Yeah, you just got to work hard. We reward hard work around here. Maybe the hero is the one-talent servant. No, Ryan, the master calls them lazy and wicked. How could that be the one-talent servant? Maybe it's the one-talent servant because the one-talent servant refuses to play the game. The one-talent servant says, I got you figured out, you oppressive system. You who don't plant in fields that you don't own, yet you harvest in them. You who get wealthier and wealthier on the backs of the poor and the poor. So here's the deal. I didn't steal from you, but I didn't help you. Here's what's yours. I'm going to give it back to you. And what does the system do? The system says, uh, sorry, we don't work that way. You're out. And maybe what Jesus is saying 
is you're in the kingdom when this one doesn't accept you. When the oppressive structures and systems don't accept you, that's what it's like to be in the kingdom. After all, wasn't it Jesus who was cast out of the city? Wasn't it Jesus who wouldn't play by the games and he was hung on a cross where there was weeping and wailing? After all, isn't Christianity the strangest of religions because our God is one who hung on a cross as a criminal, naked and ashamed and full of shame, and that's our victor. We don't read these parables oftentimes the way they were heard because we are not peasants. The reality is we are among the wealthiest people in the world. We resonate with the master. Don't be lazy. You're fired. And so we attribute that to God. But what God wants to do is comfort those who are the oppressed, who go out into the fields and plant the fields and harvest the fields, and they give it to the wealthy. And we're still doing this today, by the way. This is what makes it so brilliant. You look at the research, the gap continues to grow between the wealthiest and the poorest. You want to know where the income is going to, where the wealth is going to? It'll be, it goes into the top 2, 3, 4, 5% of our world. It just does, the top 10%. Always growing. That gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so what does Jesus say in this parable? Jesus says, for the one who has, it'll be given to the one. The one who's rich will get richer, and the one who's poor will get poorer. That's what the oppressive systems of this world do. That's what the domination system does. And I, have, I think that the hero is the one who says, I will not play by that game. I will not play by that game. And so the very, the very, the very parable that Jesus gives to upend the system is one that we interpret through the lens of our culture and it actually is done and given and delivered in a way that continues on the cycle of domination instead of breaking it. And so these are where these kind of images of God come from. And we know that this isn't God. We know that the master can't be God because earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, the same Gospel that this story is in, Jesus gives an invitation that completely contradicts CEO God, completely contradicts the image of the master that's given in this parable. In Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says this beautiful phrase that we get, still have. It's traveled through history. Come to me, all who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, imagine the master in the parable saying this. Probably, <laughs> I just, it does, the two don't line up. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. That sounds like the master in the parable, right? Meek and humble of heart. You wicked, lazy servant. Get out of my sight. You didn't make me any money. How dare you? He says, you will find rest for yourselves. A little different than the master in that parable. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, this is the normative experience of God. Like Jesus teaches us God. Now, is that parable powerful and important? Yes. Can that parable teach us about the dangers of laziness? Absolutely. But it, what it doesn't teach us is the nature of God. It teaches us the nature of the domination system of which we are a part of right now. This is what happens when you live the ethic of the kingdom of God. When you say, I won't play the game. So what is our job? What is the job? What is the burden? What is the yoke that Jesus gives us? See, the job, the yoke, the burden, the task, the checklist, whatever it might be, has always been and it will always be to love God. That's the foundation of it all, to love God. 
This is the start of it all for the Hebrews in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 5. We get something that's be- that has become known as the Shema, which is a prayer that is prayed by Jews all over the world. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your whole being, and with your whole strength. And then a thousand years after this is you know, thought to be said, or 1,200 years after this is thought to be said in Deuteronomy, Jesus comes along. As, as, a, as, a, as a belief in Christianity, we say God took on flesh and dwelt among us. The love, the, the, that which empowers the universe, the logos, the divine wisdom is fully seen in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, this peasant uh, itinerant preacher who went around proclaiming something other than the domination system of the day is asked the very same question. What's the greatest commandment? What is it all hinged on? What are we doing here? In Matthew 22, it says, teacher, what's the commandment? What is the greatest one? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Jesus would go on and say, the second is like it, meaning it's similar, it's the same, love your neighbor. And so we talk about loving God. I would suggest that the richest form of human love that we should think about as the fundamental way in which God loves us and we love God is that metaphor of lover and beloved. That, that experience of love that is so deep and, and it's not biologically based, right? It's not, we have these metaphors of, of adoption, which is legally based. We have metaphors of being a child of God, which is biologically based, genetically based. But we have this beautiful metaphor all throughout Scripture of God with, the, with humanity as a lover and the beloved. If you're in here and you are in a relationship, you understand like there's something that's indescribable. You just can't put it into words. Like, why do I love this person? Why is this person so beautiful to me? Why am I so drawn to them? Why is it that I feel so whole when we're together? Why is that? There's something so, so deep into that. And we have this, this theme of beloved and, and lover is, is all throughout the scriptures. We have a whole book called Song of Songs, an entire book that's based on sexual love between a lover and his beloved, and them coming together. And the reason why so many believe, both Jewish and Christian scholars from antiquity to today, believe why this book was canonized in the Hebrew scriptures and why we have it in the Christian scriptures is because it is a beautiful metaphor of the way in which God loves, of what that love is. We have, we have this in the prophetic books. One of the, the great uh, metaphors in the prophetic indictment against Israel, or against the people of God, is this idea of infidelity. Hosea is an entire book based upon a marriage and, and, and the bride continually commits adultery and Hosea is continually called to forgive and call the bride back, call the bride back. The prophet Isaiah uses the language, my soul yearns for you. My soul longs for you. Psalm, I think it's Psalm 24, don't quote me on that, but I think it's Psalm 24, is, the, is as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. Jesus would talk about a bride and a bridegroom. The, the great banquet that we're invited to. Revelation culminates with this, this wedding feast where the, the church is considered the bride of Christ, adorned and perfect. This is the language that permeates and this is foundational and fundamental to this reality of what God says. It's, it's why we do crazy things. <laughs> Y'all, think of the dumbest thing you've ever done for love. 
don't look at it. <laughs> Some of y'all looked at each other right then. I was like, whoa, hold on a second. That just caused a problem. I, no, I, you know what I Like, what's the craziest thing you've ever done to spend 30 minutes with somebody? How far have you ever driven? When Wendy and I met, we lived about, uh, Wendy and I met when we were kids. We were teenagers. I was uh, 17. She was 16, I believe. We lived far away. There was no, we lived about an hour and a half away from one another. Uh, we didn't have cell phones, so we had long-distance bills. Y'all ever have, remember the long-distance? Some of y'all still have these things called landlines. Let it go. You can live without it, I promise. Let it go. I was at somebody's house visiting the other day, and their phone rang. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> it was like a landline phone. But I can remember, like, I would go to work. Basically, Wendy, would, she talks about this, going to work and just turning over her paycheck to her dad because of the long-distance bill. Me doing the same thing, having a long-distance bill of two, $300 as a teenager, right? Living an hour and a half away, driving to go spend half an hour or whatever it might be. Why? Because you're in love. There's, it just, it's, you can't describe it. It's powerful. And so here's what I don't want us to miss today as we kind of wrap this thing up is that God is not a shift supervisor. <laughs> That's not what God is. God is the lover of our souls. And there is a depth and a connectivity to, to God and to God's love that we can't ever understand. And that's one of the great mysteries. We can't ever fully understand how God, reality, loves and it holds and sustains us. And so what does it mean to love God? If that's the task, how do we do that? How do we do that? And honestly, it mirrors a lot of what we do in our human relationships. If you want to have a healthy relationship, there, it's just kind of the same similar things we do with God, only there's this great mystery about it, right? So what does it mean to love God? Well, I think there's a couple of things we can do. First of all, pay attention to God. <laughs> How many of y'all ever gone, you know, a fair amount of time without paying attention to your partner? How does that go for you? Yeah, not well. You know, it's not like you say, I do, or you say, hey, let's go out on a date. You go on a date, and then you don't talk for a month and a half, right? It's the same with God. It's relational. And so we pay attention. How do we pay attention to God? Well, tradition, history gives us all kinds of, gives us kind of three big primary ways. Number one, prayer. Prayer. We pay attention to God through prayer. And that can be, a, but just prayer just reminds us. It reminds us of the reality of God. Prayer just reminds us that God is present. It's this moment in our lives where we can, we can say, hey, you know what? I, I, I forgot that I'm in God right now, so I need to be attentive. So I just tune my heart to this reality. Because you're in God all the time. I don't know if you know that or not. It's like the air you breathe. You just don't know it. I mean, everything is in God. Everything in this globe, in this world is in God. The stars, the sun, our universe, our galaxy, the alternate universe, if you're a DC comic fan, that one too, all of it's in God. We just get out of it. We get out of the flow. We get busy. We get going. It's why you ever have that moment where you're, you're at home or you're out to dinner or something, you're with that person you love and they're talking to you and then they go, hey, hello, whoa, hey. And you're like, oh, what? You have to get like snapped back into it. And don't tell me you haven't done it, especially if you've been married as long as I've been married, you know? And you're like, oh, yeah, like I wasn't present with you in that moment. That's what prayer does. It's just like jars us back in. Oh, I'm in God right now. I need to be aware of that. Worship is the second primary way in which we pay attention to God. Doing what we're doing here today, gathering as a community, whether you're online or in the atrium or here. That's not the point. The point is we participate in a community 
that remembers and celebrates and in some ways mediates the reality of God. I do believe that the gathered expression of the body of Christ, the, what we're doing here, what's, what people are doing all over us, it, 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 is a, it is an incarnation of Christ in the world. It puts flesh to it. And you do that as well, and I do that individually in our lives, but we get to do some pretty cool stuff together. And that's why this is important. And I believe we experience God's presence uniquely when we're gathered. It's not the best or the only way, but there's something powerful about being together, using our gifts and talents for, for one another's benefit. And then third is this kind of like devotional reading, particularly devotional reading of the Bible. And I know some of you in the room, like you just fell over, like I can't believe he told me to read my Bible. <laughs> I get, I get accused of that. No, we, ju- we, should read, we should read the Bible. We should read things about the Bible. The Bible is this very practical means of opening ourselves up to God. We should know what we're reading. Don't get me wrong. That's been a big problem. We should know why we're reading it. We shouldn't be looking for a reason to hate somebody. We shouldn't be looking for a rule to follow. We shouldn't be, like, that's not the point of it. But when we read, we, we just open ourselves up to God. Our, our brains, our intellect, it's part of who we are. So absolutely, we should read our Bibles. These ways, like this is what we do. And then another, so we, so we pay attention to God, and then we love what God loves. A way to love God is to love what God loves. I learned this with my children. I learned this principle. I learned if I wanted to love my wife, I needed to be nice to my kids. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Anybody else out there? Like, like I learned real quick, like, If I could understand my children and be gracious and care for my children and love my children and honor my children, man, my wife received that as an expression of love. And vice versa, it's the same way. So, and I also learned it this way, like if I learned to love the things that my wife loves to do, right? Those are are powerful ways in which we express and give and share love. So what is it that God loves? Well, tough on us, (laughs) everything, right? God's like that super annoying person at work who's just like everything, they love everything. Look at how amazing the coffee pot is. Look at how amazing this desk is. Do you know, have you met Bob over in accounting? Bob is amazing. Bob's like the driest person you've ever met in your life. He's an accountant, right? This is insane. You gotta meet Bob. He's a, you know, so sweet. Oh, and, and have you ever, have you seen the new vending machine? It's absolutely amazing. You're like, oh my gosh, I need a break. But it's the whole of creation, right? That's what we've been given stewardship over. We express our love. God loves everyone. From the least of these to the ones we label our enemies. And when we get this lover of our soul, this beloved foundational language, we will become more like Jesus. We'll start to see this world in the way God sees this world. Because what happens is we will, this will inevitably lead to us centering in God. We will center in God. Our lives become centered in this reality of love. Marcus Borg put it this way in a book he wrote called Convictions. Marcus Borg was a scholar, a teacher, I think maybe at Duke. I don't remember, to be honest with you. He passed away recently. But he wrote this book called Convictions towards the end of his life where he was just, here's the things that have shaped me. And he talks about this centering in God. And he says, centering in God is commonly the product of loving God over a prolonged period of time by regularly paying attention to our relationship with God and reminding ourselves of the reality and presence and passion of God. 
See, we can't center in God. We can't find ourselves in this space if we don't regularly love God by paying attention to God, participating. These are just the ways in which we actually center ourselves. I'm all for being in nature and experiencing God there. I, I need that. But, but I don't know that when I go and I, I get out in nature, I'm reminding myself of the passion of God, which is the justice of God. Right? I might be reminding myself of the passion and justice for like, nature, but when I'm around people, I'm reminded of the justice and the passion of God for the justice in people's lives, this fullness. And why is centering in God so powerful? Because when we center in God, we, we will start to see the same fruits of the Spirit that we saw in Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those, but two in particular that I think are really powerful, we'll see compassion and confidence flow in our lives. We will see compassion. We'll be confident in who we are in Christ. Now, I am not confident at all of a lot of things about faith. That's, to me, the point of faith. Like, I'm not, I'm not confident of a whole lot of stuff. This whole series, I mean, it's just, there's so much mystery. But I'm confident in it. There's just something that holds me. And all of a sudden, when you start to love what God loves, when you are invested into God, centered into God, that compassion just starts to rise up in you. It starts to grow in you. Interestingly enough, the word confidence is the combination of two Latin words, with and faith. With and faith. That's where confidence flows out of. So we're going to wrap up the series. We wrapped up with this idea of CEO God and this deep passion and love or beloved language of God. And the question is, what is God inviting you into? We're going to receive communion in just a minute. And if you want to grab your uh, little cup there, if you didn't get a cup uh, and a piece of little bread, like it looks like this as you came in. We have our room hosts that are going around. Just slip your hand up and we'll be happy to bring one to you. Everybody's invited. Uh, they're all individually uh, packaged. You don't have to attend this church. You don't have to take a class. You really just need to be able to open the lid. That's kind of the qualification. And if you can't do it, the neighbor next to you will help you. Um, and so we'll do that in just a moment. But as, as we're getting ready, what is it that God's inviting you into? Well, hopefully you're experiencing God, the Spirit, whispering to you, quit the corporation and accept the marriage proposal. Quit the corporation. Just quit. Just quit. But he, and here's the beauty of it. I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I got married, and it's not like I had to stop working on stuff. It's not like I got married and I didn't do dishes anymore. Right? I mean, there's still work, there's still things, but it's, it's grounded in something so different. It's grounded in something very different. And then maybe... Maybe you hear God whispering to make some adjustments to your priorities so that you can pay attention to your relationship with God. Maybe that's a whisper. So we're going to have communion together. For those of you that might be new, if you're at home, I would encourage you to grab a, uh, just a piece of bread or a cracker or, a, if you're like me, a peanut butter cup. Um, anything will work. And uh, something to drink, some water, milk, mimosa, if you're at home, whatever it might be. And we're going to have this communion. Sometimes I think when we do communion, Jesus, if Jesus were here, and I know that's kind of a weird statement to say because in some sense Jesus is here, but I feel like Jesus would be like, I can't believe you guys are still doing that. That's so weird. Um, I certainly think he would look at this and be like, what is wrong with you people? What is that? It's not at all what I said to do. Like, throw a party. 
Put something on the barbecue. Invite your neighbors and friends. Go find everybody who's hungry and bring them in. Share your life together. Tell your story. Celebrate with one another. Pray together. And tell people that I love them. And tell people that one day this kingdom will match the kingdom of heaven. And right now we'll live as if it were. And that's what this community is about. Or you could do this. <laughs> but we have 2,000 years of church history to help us understand this points us to that. And so if you're kind of new to this whole thing, there's a little piece of bread. I would encourage you, my one piece of instruction would be to open the bread first. It'll be less messy for you if you do that. Um, this is just a piece of bread, potentially a little stale. I don't know. Um, nothing magical about it. It's just a reminder of Jesus's body that was broken for the entire world, for every human being. Because Jesus said no to this system of domination. Jesus said no to violence. Jesus said no to God says you're a terrible person and you got to make all these sacrifices. Jesus said no. And they killed him for it. And he said, you're worth it. And the juice just represents the blood of Jesus that was spilled because Jesus said no. So that we could say yes so that we can have confidence in knowing what is true and what has always been true of us. And so you're invited to receive this as a matter of faith, that somehow that truth of Jesus will nourish your soul, will give you spiritual and physical strength to live in that kingdom, not build that kingdom. That's a totally different erroneous thought, but to live in that kingdom that is present right now, a kingdom filled with grace and righteousness and truth and mercy as we extend it, as we live in it. So it's the body of Christ that's broken for you, and it's the blood of Christ that's shed for you. And as we sing this song to close our series, it's where we started. If you were here on Easter, we started and we, we ended our Easter service with this song, Bigger Than I Thought. And so during this song, whenever you would like to, uh, you're invited to eat the bread and drink the juice as just a personal moment today. And then I'll be back up uh, for part two of the message, another 40 minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I'll be back up to just say a blessing and get us out of here. The body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.
throughout our time together, this song, this words, I will rest. Five weeks ago, we started this journey, and we, we talked about how, boy, it's really easy to let other people's kind of reality help us and, like, show us what God is. So he said, here's our anchor verse. This is the question we're going to ask ourselves for the next five weeks. It's the question that Jesus asked his disciples. He said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Here's what I hope maybe we picked up a little bit. That there will be times in our lives where we say, God's the gardener. That God is dead. God is not present. God is not real. God is not here. Why would I be going through this? Why would this happen to me? We won't know which way is up. We'll sit like Mary with tear-filled eyes and we won't see God in front of us. We will see a gardener. And there'll be moments where Jesus and God are pizza delivery God. It's like, whoa, this is amazing. Look at the blessing in my life. We'll call that a blessing. That's what we'll say. 
We'll say, look at how good God has been to me. We'll use that language. You will do it, right? Hashtag blessed. And it'll be all about like the good things that we perceive in our lives. It could be a person. It could be a thing. And we'll perceive God and we will see God in that. And there'll be moments where we feel like God is FBI God. God is watching us. We feel like we're under the weight of God's wrath. And we'll be looking at our lives and we'll go, I can't believe I did that. And look at how it's ruined this relationship. Or look at how much money. Look at the, dis- oh, I, I acted so unwisely. Look at how I hurt this person. And we'll feel, it will feel as if we're just getting this punishment, punitive nature towards us. And then there'll be moments in our lives where God is total hippie God. And we'll be like, whoa, I can't believe how chilled out I am given everything that's going on in my life. You will have a peace that goes beyond all understanding and it will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And you'll be like, this is awesome. And you'll have those moments. And you'll have moments where you feel God is calling you into something that is difficult. And you will put your hand to the plow and you'll know what it means to not look back but to press forward. And you'll be like, I want to live that life that's really calling. This is what God has called me to. God's called me to invest in this person. God's called me to be a part of this ministry. God has called me to this good work. And so I can't look back and I'm just at the beginning. But you're going to go and you're going to go and you're going to go. And that's wonderful because they're just metaphors for reality our experiences. But when you think, but who do you say that I am? I get those experiences. They're all real. It's what makes the Bible beautiful. We get all of them in there because there are real live life experiences. And if we're not careful, we say, this is what God is. And we do. But who do you say that I am? I hope that you will say, God, you're Jesus. And Jesus is the Christ. The divine Logos made flesh. That which created everything, that which sustains everything, love that is perfect, that is, that is who you are. And I see that in Jesus. You are the image of the invisible God, Jesus. And you are my interpretive key to all of Scripture, to every story, to every sentiment, to every word that is put into the mouth of God. I take it through this lens because that's who you are, Jesus. And in that, I find freedom to let there be mystery. And I find freedom to be in love with that. And I can experience all these things in life that make me think of God in these ways, but I just know their fingers pointing at the moon. I just know that God's bigger than I thought, and I'll rest in that. So do me a favor. If you're in the room, lift your arms up. Just receive this blessing. If you're at home, even do the same. If you're out in the atrium, you have lots of space. You can lift them up real big and go full-on Pentecostal, charismatic out there. But I just would love to say this blessing over us as we finish up today and head out. May God bless you and keep you. And may love cause its light to shine on you and through you in powerful ways this week. And as you leave this room or log off this live cast or end the podcast that you listened to on Wednesday when you caught this, may you find your heart filled with wonder at the God that is what is and will be what will be. And may you find the space and passion to love God by paying attention to God. And may you discover the compassion and the courage to love God by loving what God loves. And as you love God with all your strength and heart and soul and mind, this is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for us as a community of faith, as a network all across the world, that we would find rest for our souls in the one who says this to you. Believe me, this is what God says. Come away with me, my beloved. I long just for you. I just long for you. And may that give you strength. Amen. Have an awesome week, everybody.